You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Alrighty, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. If not, there's one right in front of you. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to continue our journey um, through the, the book of Luke. Last week, we took uh, Luke took us into the desert um, where Satan tempted Jesus for 40 days. And um, these are specific accounts that Luke recorded for us. We saw that there were some temptations that Jesus overcame, and he overcame them for us also as he overcame the devil in the desert. The, the first one we saw was uh, a temptation of provision, and that's to turn stone into bread. That's what he tempted uh, Jesus with. The second temptation was one of power. Um, again, that was the one that really hit my heart hard as I was studying last week. That, and that was the idea that Jesus could take the kingdom without the cross. That he could have the kingdom without going to the cross. And Jesus chose to go to the cross for each one of us um, because that was the Father's plan. Instead of taking the kingdom that, that Satan offered there. And the third thing was was a temptation of protection where he told him, throw yourself down. And he thought he said Jesus. He thought he had him because he was to say, the word of God says that you will not be harmed. So go ahead and do that because you trust the word of God. And he thought he had had Jesus where he wanted him. And, and we know that Jesus said that we are not to test God. We are not to test him like that. We are not to put God to the test by using his very own words. So Jesus overcame each of these temptations through the power of the Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In doing so, he showed us much more than just being an example to follow, to live by God's Word, right? To worship God alone and to do God's will even when it is hard. He gives us hope because he is our salvation, much more than an example. He is in the wilderness as our Savior. Our Savior who begins the process of reversing the curse. The curse that Adam put on humanity through his disobedience. Right? Remember, we're saying that in that desert, he reversed the curse. We read in Romans 5, 12 this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. This is the curse that we incurred as human beings in the line of Adam. Because sin entered the world through Adam's act of disobedience, sin and its consequences, which is death, spread to all of us. It spreads to all of us. Sin and death are not natural to humanity. We're not designed that way. They are the results of Adam's fall. This is why we are born with a sinful nature from which springs actual sins, our own violations of God's laws, because of the curse that Adam we inherited from Adam. However, the new Adam, which is Jesus, which is last week's passage, it shows us that he's the new Adam. He reverses the curse. And Paul, in that same chapter of Romans, says it like this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And a free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And a free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if we, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is what he purchased for us. His righteousness that he gives us so we can stand before the Father. He has reversed the curse. God's grace given through trusting in Christ reverses the curse. The curse of sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. And we all should rejoice in that. If you are in Christ, you will not taste death. You will pass from this life to the next. Seemingly, close your eyes here and you'll be with Christ. That should be wonderful news for us. That should be joyful news for us. We should rejoice in that. Interesting enough, this is the topic of Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke. It's this grace that he gives to us. The grace that God has provided through Jesus, the victorious Son of God. Read with me in Luke 4, verses 14 and 15, as we begin to see Luke talk about this first sermon of Jesus that he's going to record. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So this is kind of the characteristic of Jesus' ministry. I kind of mentioned that a little bit where last week where we said that the, the Holy Spirit took him into the desert and the Holy Spirit was with him through the whole temptations and he defeated Satan by the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit is how Jesus does everything. And if we're in Christ, that should be how we do everything also, in the power of the Spirit. In our weakness, he is strong, and that's one of the ways it happens. It's through the power of the Spirit, relying on him and trusting in him to help us. So we have Jesus who is going to the, the region of Galilee, and he's preaching. He's under in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, so from the stories of his baptism, which was incredible, because all that was here heard this voice from heaven say, This is my Father with whom I am well pleased. So now Jesus is starting to preach in all the different synagogues throughout this area. And it's quite interesting that the more he preached, the more popular he got. <laughs> the more people wanted to, to hear what he said. They were amazed at what he was saying. What Luke says is, is um, he says that they were being glorified by all. That's what he was doing. He was being glorified by all. Now we know, if we just remember a couple weeks back, when we were reading Luke 2.47, when Jesus was supposed to be with his parents and they were heading back home and, and he decided to stay in the synagogue because, you know, where am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be in my father's house, right? That's where I'm supposed to be, but the timing was off. I'm supposed to be in my father's house. In Luke 2.47 we read, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So we're, we're painting a picture where Jesus is going to synagogue to synagogue in the area. You know, just think about our tri-state area here that, that covers, you know, Pennsylvania. So he's going through all the different area, visiting all the different synagogues at the time, and he's preaching. And whenever they hear him speak, they're amazed at what he says. Now, we don't know if, if, if he preached the same message. Like, is, is Luke just saying, okay, this is the message that, that he was speaking in, in every one of these synagogues, which would be great because it should be, it's a, it's a great message for them to hear. But 
At the very least, we know that he was going around from synagogue to synagogue speaking a message. So, Jesus as a boy had great impact of those interacting with him. How much more that Jesus has the timing correct, right? The Father has anointed him. He sent him out on mission. Now the timing is right. Now he can start doing his ministry, which is proclamation, proclaiming, proclaiming. That's his mission. Proclaim the good news. Proclaim the good news. Salvation has come. Salvation has come. And how will this salvation come? It's simple. We're going back to what Sam read. It seems foolish to a lot of people, this, this idea, this good news of the gospel. That's what is to be preached. That is how salvation will come, through the good news of what Christ has done for us, to save us. So Luke's account takes us to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. We pick this up in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So now Jesus is in the community where he grew up. Right, he was uh, he was apprenticed to his dad. He was um, some will say carpenter, some say masonry. Okay, he was an apprentice to whatever his dad did. Most people think um, carpentry. So most of these people know him. This is his synagogue. This is the one that he came to when he was a boy. Um, This is the one that that he he was um, grown up in. So now he's in his hometown, which has implications that we're going to talk about next week um, because so many people rejected him, but we'll get into that next week. Um, He goes to the synagogue as a custom on the Sabbath day, which just quickly, maybe even as a little aside, if we are followers of Christ, and I know when I say things like this, and every preacher that says things like this from behind the pulpit, on a Sunday when you're looking at the people that are sitting in the pews, um, it's just of an encouragement, right, to, to encourage our brothers and sisters. If, if Jesus um, was always in the synagogue, then it would be good for us to be followers of him and, and be in our faith family on Sunday mornings, Right? He, it's his custom. So it should be our customer, custom as followers of Christ. So he goes to the synagogue as a custom on the Sabbath day. And this is what happens. Verse 17. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because it anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let's just take a moment. Let's put ourselves in a synagogue. Let's paint the picture. Let's put ourselves there. In fact, I got 30 seconds that's going to put us there. At this point in the service, Joe played a short video depicting a recreation of a synagogue from Jesus' time. So it gives you an idea of being there. You're, you're sitting around the edge and, and Jesus stands up to read. But it's interesting that then he sits down to speak. It's kind of interesting, but, but that kind of puts us there. It gives you an idea similar to what we're doing today. So a, a synagogue had a liturgy, just like we kind of have a liturgy 
in, in some way. It's not been written down, handed down from tradition to tradition. This is something that we believe in where we start with a song and then we have we read scripture, we pray, we do some more songs, we preach, we do communion, we do some more songs, we do announcements. It's kind of our liturgy. Well, a synagogue had liturgy also. And in, in the synagogue, it would begin like this. They would begin by reciting all of them, the Shema, which is, you guys know parts of this. You might know all of it. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how it starts in Deuteronomy. And they would recite that. And then there's a reading from the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, which usually went on a three-year rotation. So somebody, one of the men of the, of the synagogue, would read the, the part of the law. Um, then there's a selection from the prophet. And now, there's no real, you know, one person. It's, it's usually the, the men of uh, the synagogue, the men that was in the community. They would take turns, and, and then one person, they would pick something from the prophets to read. And that was, that was what they're going to, they would, they would pick something from the prophet to read, and they, then they would explain it or, or give an exhortation from that reading. Then they would close in the benediction and prayer. So, it's kind of, now we're there. We're, we're going through it. We've, we've already read the Shema. Someone's already read the law. And now it's time to hear from the prophets. And Jesus stands up and he opens up the scroll. Now, look at what a scroll looks like. I know it's kind of hard probably from way back there. But look the way it's designed there's some interesting things that's quite different from the way we have our Bibles or anything that we ever read. And what Jesus does, he opens up that scroll and he finds what we would call, he wouldn't call it that, he would just say this is Isaiah's prophet, the whole thing. We would call Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and then also at the very end, he read parts of 58, 6. They wouldn't call it that. We would call it that. He would just call it, this is Isaiah's prophecy. Here's the whole thing, and I'm going to read part of it. I mean, just stop and think about the familiarity he had to have with his writings. What do you notice about that? There's, there's no space in between the letters for words. There's no, there are definitely no chapter, and there's no verse numbers. And it just all runs together. But here he has this big scroll. The whole book of Isaiah is on the scroll. And, and he unrolls it to, to where he knows what he wants to say to these people. He knew the scriptures. He, he was in them often. It's pretty interesting. I find it fascinating. It's like, you know, we have the scriptures and numbers, and oftentimes I'm even like, okay, where is it? Because Google has ruined me, right? Google's just ruining me. I just look it up on Google. No, where's it at? And, you know, you know find Malachi. Or, okay, where's that at? Let me figure out where that's at. But he just opens the scroll up where all the letters and everything is, is, is pretty fascinating. So once Jesus reads the passage, he sits down and everyone watches him. I mean, you can feel the drama building. Here Jesus, this, this guy that's been glorified in every synagogue in the area. He's finally come to our hometown. And he stands up and he reads this portion of, of the prophet Isaiah. And now he's going to speak to them. He's going to exhort what this says. People lean in. They're wondering, what will he say? And we read in Luke 4.21 what he says. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, many people will say, oh, that's the ultimate mic drop. Yes, okay. But if you read closely, what does he say? He says, and he began to say to them. So, obviously, there was much more that he said that we don't have. But Luke has given us the most important thing. Because he's pointing us to Jesus and who he is. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this really doesn't mean much to us sitting here today reading this. Maybe you've already read this earlier this week and preparing for, um, as you've been reading through Luke along with us, and you're like, okay, so he, he quoted Isaiah. Well, if we understand what Isaiah was saying, we could see why that saying that this has been fulfilled in your hearing today is so important. So let's just quickly unpack that a little bit. Isaiah 61 prophesying, prophesies the coming Messiah who brings the salvation of God. That's what he's saying. Salvation is coming. He's prophesying about the one who will come. And Jesus is saying, we got to keep this this idea all the way through the rest of, of the sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It has been fulfilled. I am the fulfillment of that. Isaiah was talking about one that will bring salvation. I am the fulfillment of that. That's what he's saying. Isaiah says that the Messiah is anointed to do one thing primarily. Primarily to do one thing. To preach or proclaim the good news. That is what a prophet does. He proclaims the words and the promises of God. And we see this in our passage today. You can look right back up and you can see where he says, I proclaim the good news. I proclaim liberty. I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is doing exactly what Isaiah, the prophet, said that he would be doing, the Messiah would be doing. He's proclaiming the good news, that salvation has come and it's been fulfilled in me. So what exactly is Jesus talking about? Some have interpreted this, this idea of um, the, you know, the good news to the poor. He's given liberty to the captives, to those that are oppressed, given sight to the blind. So how are we going to interpret this? How are we going to interpret who he's talking about and what he is talking about? Some have interpreted this purely. They've swung the pendulum, so to speak, over to one side really hard and said that it's a social or political statement. The references to the poor and oppressed, which has implication for the mission of the church and alleviating the suffering of people who are actually poor and imprisoned. Kind of swung the pendulum over here. And then there are some that have swung the pendulum way over here. And what they say way over here is this. They have interpreted it that it's pure, purely spiritual terms, right? They view the passage as a picture of the coming spiritual salvation from the Lord. This salvation uh, anticipates a time when all people's brokenness because of sin will be restored and reversed by God's favor or grace through preaching. And what I want to argue that I think that it's in between. I think it's a both and. I don't think it's an either or. Um, because the, the Greek words that are used here um, speak to the, the social needs. And whenever you go back to Isaiah, a lot of those words, a lot of those Hebrew words speak to the spiritual end of things. So, so I think it's a both end. While Isaiah 61 foresees a salvific fulfillment, it also certainly, this text cannot mean less than the gospel going to the socially poor, imprisoned, and the oppressed. It has to be both and. He's talking about both. But don't get out of balance one way or the other. It has to be both and. I think we were helped to keep in mind that this text 
Again, this is where it helps to keep it in context. This text is not about us. It's not about the church. This text is about Jesus. Right? The text is about Jesus. It's not a command to go and do for us. It reveals the identity of Jesus. Christ is the Messiah, the prophet who brings the announcement of God's kingdom breaking into the world. Now, who is this announcement for? Now, we go back. This is who it's for. The poor, those in captivity, the blind, and the oppressed. That's who he's speaking to. So, I think it's it's a both end. Is he talking to those that, that may not have a lot of material wealth? Absolutely. Is he talking to people that are actually in prison? Absolutely. Is he talking to those that are spiritually bound with sin? Absolutely. I think he's speaking to all camps here, at least from everything that I studied. So again, who is this announcement for? Let's unpack these four areas. The poor, those in captivity, the blind, and the oppressed. So who are the poor? Who are the poor that he's talking about? When Jesus spoke about the poor, he was referring to the common people of the land who lived in humble poverty. In biblical terms, the poor are the downtrodden and disadvantaged, helpless in themselves, and at the mercy of powerful people in adverse circumstances. So yes, he is talking to the the social end of things. But you know what? Jesus didn't come to raise the standard of everybody of their living. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to save us. We have a greater problem than that. Um, Although God does often make righteous people prosper. right? He blesses them. As as they're righteously doing his will, he blesses them. Not saying into the the extreme that, that those that preach the prosperity gospel go into. But he does bless us. And it's okay to, to use that language, it's like, I know, maybe I'm just weird in that, where, like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that God blesses us as his children, because then everyone thinks I'm preaching a, a prosperity gospel. No, he does bless us. He, he loves us dearly. We are his children, and he does bless us. But it's never an earning thing. It's never an earning thing. It's because of his grace that he does so, because his love for us that he does so. So the, Jesus came to actually give the poor something richer, richer than, than money, right? The good news that by trusting in him, they would receive forgiveness for their sins and the guarantee of eternal life with all treasures of heaven as a promise. The poor that Jesus is uh, freeing is all who know they are in need. It's all who know that they are in need. That's who the poor are. Whether you're poor in spirit or just poor as far as economically, you know that you are in need. Jesus says it like this, and I've kind of already said it in another sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every human being except Jesus is spiritually bankrupt in God's sight. But only those who see this poverty, who mourn over sin and thirst for righteousness, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is oftentimes one of my questions whenever we do elder interviews is when did you know that you needed a Savior? Because as, I, I get leery on those that are just like they, they, they're, 
their testimony is either I've always been saved or, you know, one day I said a prayer and it's good. But it's like, no, when did you know that you needed a Savior? When did he open your eyes to see that, that the gap that you thought between you and God was like from here to the door, but it's like really from here to infinity? When did, when did you actually realize that? Because that's who he's speaking to. To the poor. To those that know they need a Savior. They need a Savior. They need someone to save them. When did you know you needed a Savior? So Jesus is anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he is anointed to give sight to the blind. We know that Jesus physically healed people in their blindness. In fact, we sang a song about it today. Perfect song, mate. We know that Jesus physically healed people of their blindness. We will be looking at him uh, doing so in a couple of weeks. But it's much more than that. The proclamation of good news removes spiritual blindness. It removes spiritual blindness. This is what Jesus came to do, to give sight for the blind. He came to help us to see our sin and our need of Savior so that we would look to him for grace. Even when we gave people physical sight, as he sometimes did, it was so that they would know that he had the power to help them see the day of salvation. That he is who he says he is, and that he can forgive sins, which is our greatest need. We see this at the end of Luke's gospel. At the end of Luke's gospel, we had the road to Emmaus, right? He had disciples walking away, thinking everything's defeated. Jesus went to the cross. He died. This was the king. He was going to come. He's going to overthrow everything. We were going to get put back in power. He's going to fix everything. It's all good. And they're walking away with their heads down. And Jesus comes alongside of them. And they start to have a conversation. And they didn't see who he was. They had no clue who he was. Verse 25, it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's the question he's asking them. It's like, why didn't you believe the prophets? They've been telling you this is exactly what's going to happen. And it happened, and you don't believe it. You're walking away in defeat. So as he was talking, he, he kind of unpacked a lot of things for them. And they were like, well, you need to come and eat with us. So they, he went to eat with us, and then we read, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So this is just a, a picture of what he does. He takes the spiritual blindness so that we can actually see Jesus for who he is. So the, the college students are up at... Um, up at Deep Creek, and what we've been doing all weekend with them, and we want one of Tim's friends, Isaac, in, who's done this many times. He's really good at what he does, and he's walking through the historical Jesus. Like, can we use the same historical things that we, we, we write history, the way we write history with, to see who Jesus is? And we've been walking through um, all these different things, but at, at some point, it, it's, well, Will God change you so you can see him for who he truly is? And 
And my prayer has been that, that as, as he's kind of set them up all weekend long, um, I, I've been getting excited. It's like, oh, you know, I, I want to definitely want to be here over listening to that. But, but um, I, I just, I'm curious to see how is he going to, because he, like he has them on, on the edge. Like it's, it's just been so good. Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Do you see him as the savior and, and the thing that you need most? It's a, it's a question that I've been, as I've been praying this morning and thinking, it's like, wow, do I truly see him for who he is? And the thing is, is, is the way that that happens, although, although Isaac, he, he was using many uh, of philosophy arguments and, 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 and how, to, how we look at evidence and different things like that, but ultimately, just like Sam read for us, it's the gospel that changes us. Now, in that, he just, he just went 20 miles deep into the gospel for him. But it's still the gospel, who this Jesus was. Who he is. That's the work of the gospel. It shows us that we need a Savior, and it heals our blindness so that we can see that Jesus is the Savior we need. We need him. We must have him. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, opened blinded eyes, and proclaimed liberty to those captive and those oppressed. Jesus said, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This echoes the great text from Leviticus that rings out from Philadelphia's famous Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. The word Jesus used for captives referred originally to prisoners. Captives in time of war. In the context of Leviticus and Isaiah, it also included people who sold themselves into slavery in, in order to pay their debts. They, they couldn't go to the bank and get a loan like we do whenever something in life comes, you know, creeping up or, or, or the way that life is today to, in order to buy a house, it's, it's obviously large sums of money. So, when, when those people didn't get, when they got in trouble in that way, they couldn't just go to the bank and get a loan. They, they had to do something to pay their debts. And oftentimes, they would give their services to another person. In the context, again, it's for someone that's, that sold themselves into slavery in order to pay their debts. If Jesus meant to free captives only in this literal sense, then he would have had a rather narrow agenda, wouldn't he? with little relevance to people in Nazareth. Because maybe everybody sitting in the synagogue, they weren't in that position. But he also said to set, um, he also said to set a liberty to those who were oppressed. The oppressed are people who are crushed in spirit and shattered by the hard experience of life. When Jesus spoke about oppression, he was speaking to anyone dominated by the powerful forces of evil in the world including people who had suffered the cruelty of verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. So whenever you see that word oppression here, in the biblical language, we would think about those that have been abused in our terms today. So what did Jesus say he has come to do for these people? To give them liberty. Or give them release, as some versions translate it. To give them release. 
Those that captive that they might have had to sell themselves into slavery who have been captive maybe in times of war. Those that are oppressed, those that are abused. What did he say he did? He said, come, I've come to give them liberty. Or as some translations, I've come to give them release. David Gooding writes this, and this will be up on the screen for you. The Greek word for release on both occasions is um, ephesus. Um, its associated verb carries a wide range of meaning to send away, discharge, let go, release, allow, and in a specialized sense, to forgive. To forgive. Since to forgive is to release someone from the debts, guilt, obligations, and deserved penalties. The noun ephesus can mean release, discharge, setting free in a general sense, or else forgiveness. And the interesting thing is, is usually when, when Luke uses this term throughout the rest of the Bible, the rest of his book, he uses it as a word for forgiveness. So this liberty that Jesus came to give the captives and the oppressed is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. We see that Jesus was referring to the most liberating release of all. Freedom from guilt through the forgiveness of sins. Freedom of, from guilt, the forgiveness of sins. There's no greater captivity than bondage to sin, brothers and sisters. It imprisons the mind, enslaves the heart, and incarcerates the soul. If that is what sin does, when, then what Jesus did on the cross is the world's greatest Deliverance. He set the captives free. He gave liberty to the oppressed. By dying for our sins, Jesus paid the debt that we owed to God and thereby freed us from the captivity to sin and guilt. As Charles Wesley put it in one of his famous hymns, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. This is the gospel according to Jesus. An amazing thing is, is the last part that he tacks on. So he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he tacks on this little bit from before that, Isaiah 58. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is incredible because this is a reference to the year of Jubilee. We find that in Leviticus 29, 25, 9 to 10. In this year, which would come every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, on the Day of Atonement, a trumpet blast signals the return of the land to the original owners and servants were set free. All debts were canceled. I think I'm going to run for president on this platform right here. At some point in time, we're going to declare a year of Jubilee and everybody gets forgiven of everything and released. Maybe not so. Maybe that wouldn't be a good idea. But do you get this for these folks, how important him adding this in to what he's saying to all these folks? They knew about the year of Jubilee. In fact, it was set up that, that most Israelites would experience one year of Jubilee within their lifetime, where they get set free. They get set free. But what Jesus is saying is, look, the year of Jubilee has come. Forgiveness for everybody who trusts in who I am 
And I am the one who is fulfilling this today. That's what he's saying. I am the one who is fulfilling this today. What Jesus is saying is that he is ushering in an age where forgiveness is available for all who trust in him. Not just every 50 years. But from that day forward. What Jesus preached at the synagogue in Nazareth was a simple sermon based on a specific passage of scripture with with a single point of application. Today, freedom has come. Today, forgiveness has come. Today, salvation has come. So the gospel according to Jesus has at least two great implications for us today. First, it shows that Jesus came uh, can save us in all our need. In his prophecy, Isaiah listed some of the deepest forms of human distress, poverty, imprisonment, blindness, oppression. Jesus came to save all of those people from that. And if he can save them from that, he can save us from whatever we're in today. He can save anyone. Nobody is too far from Jesus to be saved. Sometimes the poor are too proud to admit that they're, of their spiritual poverty, in which case they never receive the gospel. Now, this is especially true in, in a country where our poor are rich compared to other countries. And the standard of living is so much higher to actually have the heart to say that I am in need. But we are all poor. This is the, the great thing about the gospel. It doesn't matter how we humans divide things up. We are all poor. If only we see it. We have nothing to offer God except the crushing debt of our sin. That's all we have to offer is the crushing debt of our sin. But Jesus offers us the riches of his grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through he through, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The gospel of Jesus is for us in our bondage. We are held captive by all kinds of evil passions, foolish pleasures, sinful lusts, and selfish ambitions. What sins are keeping us captive? What guilt is enslaving our souls? Jesus came to set us free. By his death on the cross, our sins are totally and completely forgiven. By his resurrection, we have power in the spirit to resist temptation and lead a progressively holier life. In our struggle with sin, we are called to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, what Christ has done is not just for way back here, it's for everyday stuff of life. The gospel of Jesus is for us in our blindness. Did you know that sin is the world's leading cause of blindness? It blinds us to the scriptures. We do not see the truth of God's word. It blinds us to our own sin. We do not not see the need to be forgiven. It even blinds us to the Savior. We do not see the salvation that Jesus has to offer. Which is, we're going to see that next week when we look at the reaction of those people that were in his hometown in that synagogue. It blinds us to that. See, we do not see any of those things until Jesus comes to cure our blindness. 
It is only by the illumination of His Spirit that we are able to believe the Bible, reject, repent of our sins, and trust in Him for our salvation. If you are still groping around in spiritual darkness, then pray for Jesus to show you the light. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for our oppression. He is our strong protector, and by his grace we are safe with him. He is the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of the diseased heart, the deliverer of the soul in bondage. Jesus came to save us in all our needs, all of them. As his gospel is preached, he calls us to trust in him and be saved. That's what he's done for us. And from that gives us the second implication. The gospel that saved us is the same gospel that other people need. It's the same gospel that other people need. The same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus has been poured out on us. Now we are called to proclaim his gospel to the people around us who are just as needy as we are. That's the great thing about the gospel. You're never up here and someone's down here whenever you're, you're telling them the gospel. No, we're just two beggars telling each other where to go get food. And that food is him. It's Jesus. Now we are called to proclaim his gospel. We are called to proclaim his gospel. This is what we all need. The gospel according to Jesus. In all its saving, liberating power. If we want to see people's lives transform, including our own, we need to give people the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? If so, it has lifted you up from the poverty of your soul, released you from captivity to sin, and helped you to see past your spiritual blindness. Now God is calling you to help others who have the same desperate needs. According to Jesus... What they need is the gospel. If we love Jesus and listen to him, we will give it to them. We will give it to them. That's what he is calling us to do today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have freed us you have forgiven us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that you have worked in their hearts and they're like, yeah, I need a Savior today. Lord, I pray that they would trust in you. Father, for those that are in Christ who live in a fallen world who are still working out their sanctification. Maybe they're struggling with a sin or maybe they just had a big blow up over the, the week, this past week, or maybe there's some test results that they're fretting about, Lord. They still need the good news of the gospel. That no matter what this life brings upon us, you have freed us. You have taken away the curse. We live forever. We will be with you forever. We still need the gospel. Be reminded of all that you have done for us. The good news. That on that day, and on this day, because you have already completed the task, 
and you are praying the right hand of the Father for each one of us. This day could be the day of salvation for someone. And Lord, this day could be the day where we take our burdens to the cross. We're reminded that you have freed us from sin and you freed us from all the things that this world puts on us. Lord, I pray that we would do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.